0: Hello there, and welcome to Insight Peterborough for March 23rd. This is kind of a different way of doing things. I'm Devin Wilkins, but we have no Bob Chrysler with us today, only because I'm having to do this from home. Uh, However, I know that Bob would want me to say hi to you. Insight Peterborough is... A presentation of the Peterborough chapter of the Canadian Council of the Blind. and if you want to find out more information about the Peterborough chapter, all you have to do is send an email to CCB peterborough at gmail.com That's CCB peterborough at gmail. com. Before we get underway with interviews, I have a little bit of trivia to share with you. As I said, this is uh, March 23rd, 2020, and tomorrow, March 24th, would have been the 100th birthday of the blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby. And uh, as it turns out, she wrote a whole lot more than just hymns. Uh, she was quite a an advocate, and she wrote uh, poetry and songs, and was actually, now this I find surprising, because I, I would have thought it would have been Helen Keller, but anyway, Fanny Crosby was the first blind woman to speak to the U.S. Senate. She was born and raised and lived in the Manhattan area of uh, New York. Unfortunately, I don't have uh, any of her uh, songs that I could play for you right now, but I do have uh, an arrangement of a choir and it was the uh, school choir where where I went. Not It was a few years after I graduated but it was the choir of the um, what used to be the Ontario School for the Blind in Brantford and now it's the W.R. Uh, w. Ross McDonald School and uh, in uh, 1972 uh, they did a Uh, An arrangement of Moon River, so I kind of thought we'd start with that. Well, speaking of the school I went to, one of my schoolmates was a fellow named John Ray. He lived in Toronto at the time and still does and has made quite a name for himself in the disability community. He is the second vice chair of the Council for Canadians with Disabilities, otherwise known as CCD, as opposed to CCB. CCB is Canadian Council of the Blind, and CCD is Council for Canadians with Disabilities. And uh, I kind of thought it might be good for us to know what CCD does. So I had a fairly long phone conversation with him, and here it is. Well, first of all, John, uh, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for inviting me on to Inside Peterborough, Devon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Maybe could we begin by talking about what the uh, Canadian Council for the Disabled is and what some of the history might be?
1: That's a good place to start. Um, as it is now known, the Council of Canadians with Disabilities began in in the mid-70s as the Coalition of Provincial Organizations of the Handicapped, COPO. And that was descriptive of who the organization was at the time because it was in fact a coming together, uh, an umbrella if you will, for various provincial organizations of persons with disabilities uh, organizations that are led by us that uh, came together to provide us with a vehicle for self-expression and collective action and uh, so far in this country we have nine such provincial organizations uh, there never has been one in New Brunswick though we hope there will be one in the future in the 70s the Bylaws of COPO at the time were changed, the name was changed now to the Council of Canadians Disabilities, and at that point, membership in the organization, and membership after all is only open uh, to organizations, uh, it was expanded to include a number of national organizations like the Disabled Women's Network the National Education Association Disabled Students, the Alliance for Equality Blind Canadians, People First, and so forth. And so now the council is made up of both of those kinds of organizations. Uh, nine provincial organizations, seven other national groups, uh, two members at large who are elected every two years by the council, of which I happen to be one of them. So the the work of of CCD has, I think, not changed all that much over over the years. In the beginning, some of those uh, provincial organizations came together, especially in Western Canada, around the lack of accessible housing. Sad to say, uh, 45 years on, that's still an issue. That's still an issue across Canada. And, of course, nowadays... When we think of housing, we need to think of both accessible but also affordable housing because in the major centers, finding any rental properties is tough. And what there is is often not terribly affordable, especially for individuals who are on social systems. Uh, some of the other issues that uh, we've been involved with over the years, certainly transportation has been a major one. Mm-hmm. The uh, landmark... Supreme Court case against Via Rail regarding their purchase of inaccessible rail cars way back, I think it was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: We've
1: been involved with the Court Challenges Program, which funds organizations that want to challenge federal government decisions, and certainly fighting for human rights protection, which we now have in every province and territory across the country. The problem is that uh, I think we've come further in this country in terms of legal equality. We have the charter. We have human rights protection at, as I say, each province and, and territory. And every year, every year at every commission, the largest portion of complaints they receive deal with disability, without exception, and usually in the area of employment. That tells me, Devin, two things. One, that uh, members of the disabled community have learned that we're supposed to have some rights yeah, and that we're prepared to, uh, we uh, that we've become a more litigious country than Canada used to be, and, <laughs> and that our community members are prepared to uh, deal with uh, what is often a... a Lengthy and technical legal process to enforce our rights, but at the same time, it also tells me that just how far we have not come in in the area, what I would call substantive equality—the bread and butter issues like employment, like uh, social assistance, like housing, like transportation—and that uh, unfortunately, we still have a long, long way to go.
0: Right. Were you involved also in the uh, Accessible Canada Act?
1: Yes, we were one of the organizations that uh, pushed for strengthened the Act, and the various organizations that worked together made some progress, not nearly as much as most of us would have liked. It's uh, an Act. We were promised an Act by the Liberal government, and we got one. I hope that it will become useful. I I, I think it's better having it than not having it. But one of the problems is that this act includes the word may over 125 times. Oh, my goodness. Well, that word leaves me cold and causes me great concern. Yes. So, like most statutes, we have decent law in this country. But the question is always, to what extent is government prepared to provide the resources and the will to enforce those acts? The AODA in our province is a prime example. Uh, there was great fanfare when it was being developed. The government at that point was, seemed very committed. And then the minister, Dr. Maria Vodraschini, who was the minister at the time, after the act was passed and became law, was moved to another portfolio. And it seemed like the will and the interest seemed like a balloon burst. And I have to say that today I call it the the, the Great Disappointments Act because you know, it was designed to make Ontario fully accessible by the year 2025. When it was passed, a lot of us said 2025, that's a long, long way off. Yes. Well, it was a long, long way off. And uh, as we are now five years away from uh, that magical date, uh, the various reviews of the Act, which occur every five years, have amply dem- demonstrated that Ontario, despite how much it likes patting itself on the back for being the first province to enact a provincial law of this kind, which Ontario was, but it seems like we are a long, long way from uh, accomplishing the goal of making our province fully accessible. That was the term, fully accessible, by the year
0: 2025. Yes. Yes, we sure do have a way to go. That's for sure.
1: A lot of the... Were uh, uppermost in the formative years of the disability rights movement. Are unfortunate issues we still deal with today. That doesn't mean to say that we haven't made progress, because we have. The area of employment perhaps is the most disappointing. Yeah. The uh, our uh, uh, percentage of employed people with disability has increased, but not much. No. And I I suspect the the range of jobs that Canadians with disabilities are currently performing has gone up, but not too much. And some governments, when they release poverty reports, uh, are of the view that the solution to all of your poverty is go get a job. Well, (laughs) that's a nice idea, but it's not that simple. And uh, a lot of times, we in the community criticize government for operating as silos, which it does. And think about it, uh, listeners, that uh, a job is going to be an elusive goal if the training isn't available, if you can't find housing in the community where the job is, if there isn't uh, accessible and available public transit to get to and from that job. So I think we first of all need to look at even an issue like employment and many other issues too in a more connected and holistic manner uh, than we do as well. But in terms of employment, there still is great reluctance on the part of employers to hire workers with disabilities. They they still are the they still hold the the, the myths that we are not as that you know that we're a safety risk. There's no evidence to support that.
0: And it's hard to legislate attitude, isn't it? Very much so. And even in our attempt to legislate
1: behavior, which I think uh, we hoped would help change attitudes, I, I think uh, certainly in the area of employment, I think it's fair to say that a lot of employers would be happier if we just stopped darkening the doors that even in this uh, this year of 2020 for some reason that's inexplicable to me a lot of employers just don't seem to know how to deal with us as potential employees yet we aren't all that different from our sighted counterparts our non-disabled counterparts you know we We, many of us have gone to school, many of us have uh, a higher education, and and yet, despite that fact, um, many of us have had great difficulty getting work. These these days, uh, the government claims that there are jobs going vacant, that employers can't find people to fill. Uh, That may be true. But if that is true, and I think it may be, because I I hear it so often, it must be true. (laughs) Why don't some of these employers turn to us? Because there are many people with disabilities who are already able and interested in working who just need that first opportunity to get themselves in the door and prove to an employer that, hey, we do have skills and that we are interested in making a contribution to their
0: organization. But we need that first chance. So what do you envision uh, the uh, Council for Canadians with Disabilities and other um, organizations doing, say, over the next five years to improve that situation?
1: Well, there will be standards developed under the Accessible Canada Act that will cover issues in the federal arena. Now, Canada, as you know, is a federal state, there are certain areas that are reserved for the federal government, like transportation, inter, inter, interprovincial bus, rail, ferry service, mm-hmm. air airline travel, the federal public service, uh, broadcasting, telecommunications, banking, things like that. Those are areas that uh, the federal government has... Way over. Well, the Accessible Canada Act uh, can deal with any of those, and and, but but not other areas that are under provincial jurisdiction, like education and uh, social the the delivery of social services and those sorts of things. So, as as has always been the case, it's up to us, uh, organizations of persons with disabilities like CCD and others, to try and hold the government's feet to the fire. During the last election, the Liberal Party promised that they would introduce a disability lens. The idea of this is that any new policy program or piece of legislation would be scrutinized to make sure that it not only didn't impose new barriers, but that it hopefully did something to help remove existing barriers. So far, the government has used what they call a gender-plus lens. Started out looking at these areas in terms of gender, and then they expanded it. They say that the gender-plus approach covers disabilities other groups we have claimed that it does not no it certainly doesn't do a good enough job and so many groups including during the the time of the debate on the accessible Canada Act, tried to get a disability lens written into that legislation and the government wouldn't do it but during the election they announced right towards the end that they would introduce this notion and we're going to be, uh, you know, trying to hold their feet to the fire. I, I guess also the the other uh, real area is how are we as persons with disabilities perceived of by the greater community? It mm-hmm. seems like our lives are not valued as much as other people's. We see that in the area of med- medical assistance and death, which has been an issue that, the council has been uh, working on very hard and I have to say that uh, press coverage has largely disproportionately covered the other side. It, it has it's basically been supporting made. Well, we believe that safeguards are needed, that uh, improved palliative care is necessary and that these questions should also be given. Uh, much more attention than they have been. Well that, that, that's all, all, all part of uh, how we're perceived about it and of course now that we have this coronavirus, will persons with disabilities and our needs, anyone who tests positive who has who has a disability will what kind of support will we be given? Are testing centers fully accessible? Are they located in areas in a town or city that is easy to get to? Uh, you know, will information about the virus, its symptoms, and uh, what people ought to do, will it be uh, put up on fully accessible websites? Because uh, it, it will be it will be very easy for. Uh, for us to get uh, uh, to 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 not be given the same degree of attention and concern as others, that that's what sometimes happens in uh, times of emergencies and uh, disasters.
0: That's very true. So what? Uh, you were saying at the beginning of this interview that it, uh, that the CCD is made up of organizations. What um, kind of influence can ordinary Canadians um, have? And I mean ordinary Canadians with disabilities. What kind of influence can we have on decisions that are? Uh, made and and directions that are chosen by the CCD.
1: Uh, You're talking about political involvement.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, That's how it's done. Uh, Writing
1: your MP, your MPP, your local city councilors. Because, uh, you know, a lot of things are also uh, done at the municipal level, things like public transport, Things like snow removal. Uh, your listeners may may be thinking to yourselves, "Where? How is snow removal a disability rights issue?" I submit that it is, because uh, a lot of times when snow plows clear snow, they may not leave a path at a corner to make it easier possible for us to cross the street. Well. That's a new barrier that uh, I don't think anyone intended to put in place, but without uh, greater care, that's the sort of thing that sometimes happens to us. Mm -hmm. More of us need to get involved as members of political parties, but as individuals, if you don't want to do that, you can still have some uh, impact. Writing letters to the editor of your local newspaper, writing to your elected officials, getting involved in citizen organizations, whether they have a disability focus or not, there are groups that, you know, deal with issues like the environment, like transportation and other topics, like housing, and we need to get more of us involved in those issues, in those organizations as well as our own. Because there are, there are opportunities to build bridges; that there, there are allies to be found among these organizations, and there's no reason why our issues—because after all, persons with disabilities, according to statistics Canada, now comprise 22 percent of our population. Wow! That is a significant portion of Canada's population.
0: Almost a quarter.
1: Almost a quarter. So I think it's reasonable for us to expect, of course it doesn't always happen, but I think it's reasonable to expect them, as these organizations take on what we can call major public policy topics, that issues of persons with disabilities be considered and and be part of of the dialogue and be part of what these groups are seeking. Well, if we aren't there, it is too easy for various organizations, either to just forget about us, or to intentionally ignore our needs. I I make the point, Devin, that there aren't enough of us in places where decisions are made, in the boardrooms where decisions about what kind of technology is going to be developed, and whether it will be made accessible from the get-go, or whether adaptations will be added later. Not enough of us in in, uh, media organizations where decisions about what kind of stories are going to be covered. And here we've made progress. More and more of our press coverage has moved from the human interest pages to the hard news areas. And that's what we wanted. Yes. But still, there's enough of this. And what kind of slant will a story receive? There aren't enough of us in ministers' offices where public policy decisions that affect all Canadians get made. And fixing this problem, bringing more of us into those places would not only bring needed expertise about disability in house into those organizations, but it would also help do something about our chronic level of
0: employment. Right. So it's up to us individual Canadians to work on the on the local level.
1: We we need to work at all levels. Mm-hmm. The local, the provincial, the national, and some of us also work at the international level. Canada played a considerable role in achieving the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities.
0: Is there a way for people ordinary Canadians to keep up to date with what CCD is up to? Uh,
1: we have a website, uh, www.ccdonline.ca, okay. um, so people can uh, find out what we're doing. Our office number, we're based in Winnipeg, is 204-947-0303, and if you call the office in Winnipeg, you'll probably reach April Diaban, who is our research, our research officer.
0: Okay, and uh, people can leave messages uh, with her? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Uh, and,
1: uh, or you can send email to info at ccdonline.ca as well.
0: Okay, all right. You don't have a newsletter or anything like that?
1: Not, not regularly, no. No. At this point. Okay. We have, had, we have had at times, and I hope that we will reinstitute one in the near future. Yeah.
0: So your message is to keep uh, working on on whatever level you can, whether it's sending letters or emails to counselors or MPPs or MPs, and so, keep. In the
1: advocacy work, you never know when something you do will bear fruit, and, and sometimes. It seems like it's a long struggle, because sometimes it is. Yes. We seem to progress incrementally in this country, but keep up the pressure. Keep keep the, the feet of your elected officials to the fire, because after all, their real role is to represent us. And that means representing folks with disabilities as well as others. So it's important that we make sure that they know what our issues are, what our expectations are, and to keep the pressure on, folks.
0: Yes, thanks so much for talking with us, John. And I understand that you uh, uh, might be um, putting your name in for second vice chair of the CCD. I am
1: second vice chair right now. This is this is an election year, so if uh, the virus will uh, abate, <laughs> we are scheduled to have our two day annual meeting and uh, discussion of hot topics in Winnipeg in June as we usually do and this is an election year so we will see what happens
0: all right well if you're seeking election uh, all the very best and thanks very much for chatting with us thanks
1: for having me on the show Devin good 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 to talk with you
0: this of course is March and March is Kidney Month, perhaps you've seen some of the commercials on TV where the children are talking about what a kidney is, and uh, one uh, shows her grandfather, I think it's a a female, her grandfather's um, kidney stones and says they're very valuable. And another one says that a kidney is a bone in your back that helps you turn. And uh, the commercial, the public service announcement, finishes with someone saying something like, they don't know how vital a kidney is, do you? So I thought what I would do is dig back into the archives and find a, uh, an interview that Simon Trevor-Annes and I did with Shelley Green from the Kidney Foundation uh, on March 20th of 2018. and uh, Because what she has to say is as relevant now as it was then. So let me ask uh, you a a rhetorical question, folks. How often do you think about the health of your kidneys? Interesting thought. Yeah. But we need to, and there are a lot of people who have difficulty with kidney disease, and here to talk with us about... Uh, kidney health month which is March is Shelly Green. Hi Shelly how are you?
3: I'm good thank you how are you?
0: Good good. How how do you know whether you have got uh, that you have problems with uh, with your kidneys and how how common
3: is this? Um, I think it's very common um, and I think People have different symptoms for sure, um, and there's a lot of information on the kidney foundation website. Um, a lot of people um, have blood work taken, which um, which will test your creatinine level, um, and the creatinine is the function of your kidney. And if it's um, showing high, um, then the doctor would obviously do some more tests and check. Um, check your kidneys and check all kinds of things about you to see what's going on. Um, that's one of the first things that would happen um, if you weren't feeling well and that showed up in your blood work.
0: You might be feeling a bit sluggish and, and stuff like that, would you, do you think?
3: Definitely tiredness and um, a decrease in in urination and because your kidneys... Work all that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and uh, tiredness and just a, a feeling of not well, for sure.
0: It's incredible what the kidney does. It's only about the size of a fist, isn't it?
3: Yes, but we're born mm-hmm. with two of them. Yes, yeah. yes,
0: thank goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs> well, do you think it makes sense to do a bit of a, this is what a kidney is and this is what a kidney does? Maybe somebody doesn't know.
0: Yeah, can you can you give us some idea of, of what the kidney does?
3: Um, so the kidney um, helps reduce or eliminates the waste in your body, um, and I don't have all the technical terms. I, I'm not a nurse. I'm not. Um, I actually don't have kidney disease myself. My husband um, grew up with kidney disease, and he um, has had two transplants in his life, um, kidney transplants, and um, and so he's certainly gone through uh, a lot of medical challenges that way, and um, Definitely, um, they, yeah, they work to eliminate the waste in your body.
4: Cool.
0: And when someone has had a, a transplant, um, they have to take medication for the rest of their life, don't they, To Yes.
3: It's it's an anti-rejection medication um, that they take, and it is usually for the rest of your life. Um, you're closely followed by uh, the doctors, and, um, and they're... Checking your blood work on a regular basis, and they're making sure that uh, that if any medications need to change in their dosage to give you the optimal health, that uh, that they're doing that for sure. D- Does someone with
0: kidney disease have to be on a particular diet? Uh,
3: when When you are experiencing kidney failure and kidney disease. Um, the diet um, is definitely helpful. Uh, reducing the sodium uh, in your intake and um, and potassium and other things will help um, you to feel better and help prolong the life of the kidney that may be failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you when your kidney's at a stage where it's not functioning anymore and you need to go on dialysis or um, that type of treatment, they definitely have some very specific food restrictions and fluid restrictions that you need to follow.
2: Hmm.
3: I had a friend that um,
0: experienced kidney failure as a complication of the cancer that she didn't know she had. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, all of a sudden she just wasn't able to Um, fend for herself anymore. She had some uh, ongoing physical difficulties, but it was definitely getting worse. And um, finally a friend of hers, well, the superintendent of uh, the building that we lived in in Collingwood took her to Emerge and uh, said to them, she's not coming back until you figure this out. And she never did get back home.
4: Oh wow! Yeah. Hmm. So you need your kidneys.
3: At least one of them. At least one. Yes. People can live with with just one kidney. Um, my husband's brother donated a kidney in order for my husband oh, wow. to get a kidney, and they're both doing really, really well.
4: Wow, that's a big that's a big gift. It was. It yeah, yeah,
3: it was. Yeah, it was a real blessing for sure.
4: You owe me one.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and. Uh, These are happening, these living donations are happening more and more, aren't they?
3: Mm hmm They definitely are. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's what we need. You know, if if circumstances arise, you know, that's uh, definitely a a great alternative if it can be
3: arranged. If you have a family member or a friend who's willing to go through the testing and see if they're a match with you... um, then it's a huge blessing, and people can live, you know, with just one kidney for the rest of their lives, with very, with no complications or sometimes very minimal um, life changes, and um, not even really missing that kidney that's that's been donated. Um, in my husband's case, um, he wasn't a direct match to his brother anymore because of his previous um, transplant. And so they went into the paired exchange program, which uh, meant um, my husband's brother gave his kidney to someone else, actually someone in Edmonton, um, and their donor gave to someone else. And then that person's donor gave to my husband. So it was a, a three-couple chain. Musical um, chairs. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. And uh, so the paired program is a great uh, program if if you have someone willing to donate, but they... Are not a direct match to you, um, then it's a great program to be able to um, still have that person donate a kidney in your name.
4: We're talking pretty casually about something that's pretty serious, like taking an organ out of somebody's body and putting it in your own body. is It's pretty. That's a pretty severe surgery, right? Like this is this is somewhat of a new thing.
3: I don't know how new it is. Um, definitely, it's it's happening more than it used to, and it's more talked about for mm-hmm. sure um, than it used to. And it is major surgery, mm-hmm. um, for sure. And yeah, for my brother-in-law, he had to go to Edmonton. Yeah. They always take, um, the person who's donating. So, cause they're currently healthy, mm-hmm. um, to the person who needs the kidney, um, is my understanding. And so he had to fly to Edmonton and, and be there a couple days before the surgery and have, um, had the surgery, then stayed a couple days after, and had to be cleared to fly home. Um, so it's uh, it's quite a quite an ordeal for sure. Wow! Yeah. And is that uh, sort of
0: thing what funds that are raised through the kidney foundation look after, or how does that work?
3: Um, the kidney foundation has definitely. Um, different places where funds would would be directed. There is a program um, called Reload, which is a program that living kidney donors can uh, apply to in order to get some of their expenses reimbursed. Um, And that's, um, I believe, through um, the Ontario government and not necessarily through the Kidney Foundation. Mm -hmm. The Kidney Foundation does have um, some financial resources that are available to people um, as kind of a last resort um, that they can apply for for um, medication or equipment that they need in their home for dialysis or um, transportation, that kind of thing.
0: Now, there are two
3: types of dialysis, aren't there? Um, at least two, mm-hmm. yes. Yep. Yeah. There's um, peritoneal dialysis, Um And there's hemodialysis. Um, There's also, like, there's different levels of hemodialysis. There's hemodialysis that you can do at home, and hemodialysis that happens at the hospital. Um, So, but the two types are peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis, yes.
0: I had a friend that uh, used to need to do um, peritoneal dialysis, and they actually make an entry into the abdominal cavity mm-hmm. um and 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 put the um
4: catheter yes permanent catheter in the abdomen i've got the website open in the peritoneal okay t- yeah. in yeah.
3: the peritoneal cavity yes yeah. uh-huh <laughs> my <laughs> husband my husband uh did that dialysis for several months mm-hmm. um at home yes yeah and, and
0: then and they have to be careful not to allow um like to try to keep it as clean as possible, when when the um, material, when the, the liquid, the fluid is is being uh, transferred, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise they might uh, get uh, peritonitis, which is a horrible systemic type of inflammation
3: and an infection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it is quite a. Uh, you try to make it as a sterile environment as you can. Um, I know when my husband did it, he always tried to do it in the same room with the door shut. And you have to wear masks and and that kind of thing to avoid. Our cat wasn't allowed in the room <laughs> while he was uh, doing his exchanges. And mm-hmm. it is quite a process that uh, you get training for from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, the nurses had us come into the hospital several times uh, to be trained on how to perform the, the dialysis and um, then they actually came to the home even a couple times to watch us, to make sure we knew what we were doing and mm-hmm. what he was doing, and um, yeah, it was it's quite a process for sure. Um, now we we're
0: talking a few minutes ago about the kidney foundation. Um, you have the what is it called the kidney for? Cars for Kidneys or Kidneys for Car... I guess it's Cars for Kidneys.
3: Yep, the right? Kidney Car Program. Kidney Car, yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So, um, yeah. So there's a there's a ton of information on the Kidney Foundation website, which is just www.kidney.ca. And, um, and one of the programs that they have is the Kidney Car Program. And basically, if you have a car that you no longer want or need um you can call the kidney foundation and uh and make arrangements for them to come and pick it up and they will give you a tax donation for um the car they someone i think appraises the car to understand the value um of what that tax donation needs to be Mm -hmm. and they'll take it away for you yeah that's super yeah for for
4: resale or for scrap
3: it depends on the car yeah Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I
0: bet you lots of wreckers uh, use that sort of thing. <laughs> I hope so.
3: Yes. yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. What well, What else? Uh, what other programs does the Kidney Foundation
3: uh, do? So they have um, they have the Kidney Clothes Program, which is um, a program where they'll take gently used clothing, footwear, and textiles, um, and uh, and again reuse those to uh, to um, have money coming in to the foundation. Um, there's a 1-800 number that you can call if you have something to donate um, to them and um, they have their March Drive canvassing so you know you may have someone come to your door and ask you to support the kidney foundation and uh, and that usually always happens in March There's also a peer support program. So if you're experiencing kidney disease or have someone close to you that is, um, you can connect uh, through the Kidney Connect program. Um, And it's, again, there's a website called, uh, or on kidneyconnect.ca. And so there, it's a place where you can talk to someone with similar experiences as you or ask questions or get advice. They won't give medical advice, um, but they will. They're usually someone who's been in the same situation that you are. Mm -hmm. Do you have any statistics
0: on how common kidney disease is?
3: I don't have that in front of me, no. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's more common than we we hear about. Yes. Um, but I, but I don't have the statistics in front of me. Yeah. Okay.
0: And are there any events happening in the Peterborough area during during March um, aside from the uh, the uh, canvassing?
3: That's happening. Um, March. <coughs> March, that's okay. March 7th was World Kidney Day, and um, I know a friend of mine was at the hospital that day, and uh, she was promoting um, organ donation and, uh, and kidney month um, at the hospital, but that's in the past. Um, and then there's the March Drive canvasy. I'm not <coughs> aware of any other events this month, but I do know um, every year in September they hold the annual kidney walk, Um, And so it's almost always held at Nichols Oval here in Peterborough. Um, The date this year has not been confirmed yet, but it's always in September. Um, And it's a great time for people to get together. And we just walk down the Rotary Trail for five kilometers, uh, two and a half there and two and a half back to Nichols Oval. And uh, that's another way that the Kidney Foundation raises some money towards their programs as well. That's super.
0: (coughs) Pardon me. Survive. (laughs) Yes. Um, And there was another question, and uh, uh, that I wanted to uh, ask you. And it seems to have um, escaped me, but it it had something, some connection with what you were uh, um, saying there. Um,
4: You're choking on it. I know.
0: (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. So, with regard to, oh, I know, it was about Mm -hmm. organ donation. Mm Mm-hmm. That was what it was about. So, uh, I'm sure that you folks are real proponents of people donating, uh, thinking Mm -hmm. about and talking about donating organs.
3: We think it's a great idea. Why take your organs to heaven with you?
0: Uh, Yes. (laughs) I I
3: know somebody,
0: actually, that has a... um, a thing at the end of her email uh, every time you get an email um uh something about don't take your organs to heaven heaven knows uh, only knows we need them here that's correct
3: yeah mhm hmm. uh, it's uh people can donate um or can register uh to donate their their organs um and uh and it can benefit multiple people um you can donate, you know, several organs: your eyes, your skin. Um, it's uh, yes, you don't need them anymore at that point. No, no.
0: <laughs> so, and it's always uh, there's a thing, I guess, on the back of your driver's license. Is yes, there, that you can sign
3: when you're when you're updating your driver's license. I think it's something that gets embedded into the into the card. Yes. Oh, yeah. Your consent.
0: <clears throat> okay.
4: I have a couple statistics. Oh, good. So, nearly 75% of the over 4,400 Canadians on the waiting list for an organ transplant are waiting for a kidney. So, m- most of the people who are looking for an organ are are looking for a kidney. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, very. Yeah. yeah.
4: And and there's 24,114 people on dialysis, and only 14% of them are waiting for a transplant. Wow. Interesting.
3: Yeah. some of them wouldn't be eligible for a transplant really based on if if their body was going to reject it um mm. or if they're too sick or that kind of thing there's there's other there's criteria you need to meet in order to be eligible for the transplant well, I so, imagine
4: it takes a toll on your body
3: It does yeah, yeah. and the and the lifelong medications and mm. just
4: yeah Interesting thing as well, 1 in 10 Canadians has kidney disease, and millions more are at risk. That's kind of shocking.
3: Yeah, yeah. 1
4: in 10. So you know 10 people.
3: It's a high number. Yeah. It is a
4: high number. It's kind of surprising. And then each day, an average of 15 people are told that their kidneys have failed. Wow. Mm hmm Two leading causes of kidney failure, diabetes (laughs) at 36%, and renal vascular disease including high blood pressure, which is 15%. So those two things, largely genetic or habits? Question mark.
3: Well, I think, I think diabetes is usually genetic, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the high blood pressure is something that we can usually control if we are good with our diet and um, sodium intake and exercise and all that kind of thing.
4: Right. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme. Many of our guests are talking about, you know, things that are that are challenges, and exercise and a good diet are often a, a preventative way to to uh, to avoid those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Two uh, extra reasons to look after yourself mm-hmm. and take care. <laughs>
4: yeah. Kidney disease is the tenth leading cause of death in Canada. Wow. Mm-hmm. Scary Gee, stuff. Yeah. And then apparently there's no cure for kidney disease.
3: No. Dialysis will help prolong your life, and, and it does the work of the kidney when your kidney stops functioning. Um, but again, um, it's not a cure, and you may progressively get worse if, if you don't get the transplant
0: so uh, the uh, amount of time that you would spend in dialysis is uh, directly uh, proportional to the the uh, health or non health of of your kidneys then right
3: they they definitely um, assess each person and kind of set them on um, on a prescription or on a time limit. I know when my husband was on hemodialysis at the hospital he was set for four hours, three times a week. Um, there were other people around him who were only there for maybe two and a half hours or, um, or three hours. And there was other people around him who were going more than three times a week. Oh, wow. Um, the peritoneal dialysis um, that you typically would do at home is an everyday thing. You ha- he was doing it three times a day. Um, and uh, and so it's something that you do every day. And the amount of um, fluid that you're using and the time frame between um, having the fluid exchanges, going in and going out, um, would again be dependent on the health of your kidney or non-health of your kidney. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You'd really have to, if, if you were on dialysis, you'd really, either kind, you'd really have to organize your... Uh, your routine, your daily routine. Uh, well, I can do this when I'm on dialysis, but I can't do that, so I won't do that on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'll plan that for another time during the week. You'd really have to uh, plan your life, wouldn't you?
3: It definitely affects your life. <laughs> um, thankfully, my husband um, had a very understanding and accommodating employer, and um, and so he would... Uh, when he was on the home dialysis, he was able to take um, a break and go home and, you know, complete his dialysis, then go back to work for a few hours. And then he'd end up leaving early in the day um, and uh, to do the next round of dialysis. Um, so he lost some time, but working was really important to him, so he continued working. There's a lot of people who are on dialysis who... Um, the fatigue and tiredness just takes over, and they can't work anymore at that time. They're, mm-hmm. um, they're not able to um, take care of themselves doing dialysis as well as going to work every day or every so many days. Um, and uh, So it depends on the person and their health, and, and uh, my husband was happy that he was still able to go to work, and, uh, and the employer was great at um, giving him the time that he needed away. Um, when he was on ho- uh, the hemodialysis at the hospital, he just needed to uh, reduce his hours a little bit uh, to accommodate. Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: mm-hmm. That's great that there's some flexibility there.
3: With his employer, there was. I'm sure yes. not every employer is able to do that or um, or it might affect the, the work too much, but uh, his employer was able to do that.
4: Yeah. Otherwise, a very costly and disruptive process, I guess.
3: Can be. Yeah. yeah.
0: So if people want to learn more about uh, kidney disease or the work of the Kidney Foundation, uh, Shelley, how can they go about doing
3: that? Uh, Well, like I said, the Kidney Foundation um, has a website, and it's uh, www.kidney.ca. It's got some great information on there. It's got pamphlets you can download. Um, There's tax tips in there. Um, There's different different screens you can go to, to. There's... The tax tips screen um, gives information on how to claim medical expenses on your taxes um, or gives some information on the disability tax credit and also links to the Canada Revenue Agency um, sites. Uh, Then there's the peer support through the kidneyconnect.ca, and uh, and there's all kinds of links there that... um, that people could get more information on how to care for their kidneys um, and what to do if they um, if their kidneys are failing and uh, that kind of thing. Terrific.
0: Well, Shelly, good luck with your uh, fundraising uh, events and uh, awareness raising. Glad you're able to come in and have a chat with us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening, and the good Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Bye for now.